I'm not a good moralistic writer. You know, it's not my thing. Like, I'm, I'm on an, I don't have like, I don't have an activist bent of, of any kind. And so I just want to tell the story. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was Menachem Kaiser, this month's guest for Glance at Culture. Menachem discusses the genesis of his book entitled Plunder, a memoir of family property and Nazi treasure, and his interest in writing about the writing of his long-lost relative, Abraham Kaiser, who was a forced laborer during World War II in underground structures in Poland that were given the code name Project Riza. We also go into his unexpected research on the Vilna Ghetto and his revelation of how morally and historically complicated the Holocaust is. This leads to the moral and ethical questions raised by his inheritance claim for his grandfather's building in Poland. And he gives his thoughts on how the justice system is designed to frustrate efforts to reclaim property lost or taken during World War II. And he shares about his current project related to an ongoing story in Montreal that involves allegations of hiding $4 billion in Nazi gold. Menachem Kaiser, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Would you start with a brief overview of Plunder, your memoir, and how you came to write it? Sure. Um, so my book called Plunder, uh, it's a memoir that really has sort of two tracks, you might say, like two parallel narratives that start getting entangled in unexpected ways. The first is my ongoing attempt to reclaim family property that belonged to my grand, but really my great grandfather that I found out that my grandfather had tried to reclaim after the war. Um, this is in a town called Susnovich in Poland. Um, so it was, you know, quote unquote, lost during the war. Um, and then in about 2015, I found out that my grandfather, who I did not know, who died before I was born, who I really didn't know much about him, uh, had spent basically the rest of his life after the war trying to reclaim it. And so, uh, you know, the first chapter of the book is me sort of learning about that and then um, sort of taking the necessary steps to uh, reclaim that property. And then the second sort of uh, narrative that's in the book is about, this was a little hard to explain, so I'll just be very brief. It's sort of, I, uh, I find out about another relative um, who no one in my family knew about, who is my grandfather's closest surviving relative, a man named Abraham Kaiser. And Abraham is uh, notable because he is a sort of a mythological figure among um, modern day treasure hunters. Um, on account of a diary at Richmond Mall in the camps, which was used as a sort of blueprint for uh, like a top secret Nazi infrastructure project that today is sort of um, obsessed over by these treasure hunters. And so the book follows those two, those two narrative tracks and um, things get messy, let's say. What I believe I've heard you say in a prior interview is that that memoir by Abraham Kaiser that you come across and your memoir that you see them as in conversation with one another you know, sort sort of. I you know, for me, I I come from. I'm not like a, a journalist really, and so I I come from. I I actually approached this book originally. I was in an MFA program for fiction writing, and so 
you know, I'm like a, I'm like a, I'm like a real dork about that kind of stuff. And so like the stuff that really excites me is actually like writing about writing, which is, that's where, you know, we sort of facts, blah, whatever, who cares, but like writing, but it does alienate, uh, you know, people. So you can't do too much, but for me, that was a really exciting, uh, that's one of the more exciting chapters when I sort of got to sort of tackle Abraham's text, um, like as a piece of text and not just as an artifact. And so, uh, it is, you know, that was that was like I didn't really. That was that that was a, a reaction from a lot of people that sort of I didn't anticipate, but I think it was still very true of saying Abraham's also a writer. I'm also writing about that, and I'm either in conversation or in sort of a weird way, kind of in competition with. I, and I think Abraham's book is is actually so good, uh, surprisingly good, and not you know almost in spite of the fact that it's a Holocaust memoir. Um, it just happens to be just like a really, like very, like a seriously literary, like he just, he had really good literary instincts. And, um, and so like tackling that text was interesting and kind of scary. Cause I do publish like in my book, there's long excerpts, translated excerpts. And I think they kind of blow my, <laughs> my, uh, material out of the water, but, um, yeah, I you know yeah right. The core is like a book about a book. To me, is always going to be kind of fun and interesting, um, and that's on on one level. This that is what this is about, and also that was sort of a surprise. I didn't know that when I was sort of started out setting doing this book, how interesting and rich the text itself will be, and also the story behind the memoir. The parts of Abraham Kaiser's book that most resonate with you. Could you describe an excerpt or uh, or tell what it was about? Uh, certain excerpts that really stirred you? Sure. It's, it's a really sort of, it's an interesting book, like textually, because what it is is the first sort of half of it are based, they sort of seem like diary entries and they're like, um, it has the day of the week and then it has like uh, the, the, the location, which would be the concentration camp he was in. And then he escapes. And then ostensibly he doesn't have time to write the diary entries while he's in hiding in like a, the basement of a German woman. And so the, the diary actually shifts to some, a little bit more memoir in sort of mode. And so it's for me, that's, and then it reverts back to diary um, at the end. And so you're like, that's a really interesting, just, it's a very interesting. And so the, when you know the story behind it, so basically Abraham was in these, uh, a series of concentration camps and he, as the story goes, he stole scraps of cement packaging and scribbled his notes. And then he would be transferred from camp to camp. And he would, right before he'd be transferred, he'd nail these notes to the underside of the latrine. Um, and after the war, he borrowed and he survived the war. Uh, he hid for about a month in the basement of a German woman. He borrowed a bicycle from that woman and rode from camp to camp, collecting these scraps of cement packaging, brought them to an editor, and they turned it into this memoir. And so like, but the memoir didn't appear in Polish until the early sixties. Um, and it does appear also in Hebrew in the early fifties off what I believe what I have every reason to assume is the same original notes, but there's like, there's like, there's changes in those notes. And so it's a little bit of a mystery who made those changes and why. And so maybe some of it was Russian censorship. Maybe some of it was uh, Abraham regretting some of the decisions he had made with his editor but uh, to me, that was something sort of really rich and a little mystifying of this book sort of existing on two different planes. Like there's the there's the Polish version, which is read very, very differently 
and sort of celebrated among this treasure hunter community is constantly being republished. And then there's a Hebrew version, which was published and immediately forgotten. Uh, and, you know, it's been out of print for 60 years and uh, really hard to find, really unknown. Um, and so to me, this is, again, it just gets to like the richness of the text that it has uh, like a life on these two, basically two different planets. And um, just, yeah, I just found it sort of endlessly fascinating. What are your thoughts about reactualizing history with stories like Abraham Kaiser's or even your grandfather's that you picked up his work and moved on with? Sure. Wait, what do you mean by reactualizing? Bringing it back to the fore of a conversation. Yeah, sure. I think there's a, there's like a complicated sort of almost political conversation about what stories we center and what stories we decenter and like what deserve to be, you know, you, there's a limited, there's a bandwidth. And so like how, what attend, where do we sort of allocate our resources? Um, that's a conversation I would never, I don't, I'm not a gatekeeper. Um, and so I'm not sort of wading into that. I, I see, I approach mine as sort of a much more personal story. And so I'm not approaching this with any activist bent. Um, and I'm actually, to be totally frank, over the last year, um, I, fa- I found myself in a role that I'm not entirely comfortable with, of like sort of being a spokesperson. And so, you know, I wrote this book, it was, you know, it got some attention and it was sort of like one of the Holocaust books of the moment or like of the year. And um, uh, I'm a little younger than some of the other writers. And so I was like called upon to sort of represent my generation in, in interviews or uh, public forum. And honestly, it's not like a role and it sits well with me because like I don't relate to it. Like I, it, it wasn't, it didn't grow from a passion project. I didn't, I didn't grow up with like a sense of Holocaust trauma. And, and I certainly didn't grow up with a sense of like responsibility uh, to be like, I needed, these stories are so important and I have to get them out. I think they are, um, but I'm always going to come from a writer, um, like a perspective of a writer of like, this is my story. If I could do it honestly and meaningfully, I believe it has intrinsic value. Um, and if people relate to it, if people take lessons, um, then great. But like the to me, the, like the writer's mandate is to sort of make something that feels honest and true. Uh, and to the extent it resonates, wonderful. You're saying that the idea of Holocaust stories, that's not what was pulling you into this, this interest in that. Yeah. But you did have interest in something about this topic was it just your grandfather or was there more to it and has that changed bro that's a good question so you know the the, my story is i you know i grew up with these um my grand three of my four grandparents were holocaust survivors um and my father's parents were both from poland uh but again i didn't i so i grew up with that identity but not that sort of compulsion you might call it like to learn more or sort of dedicate more time to it. It was just sort of like this, you just, I just knew it. It was just sort of like this sort of baseline untextured knowledge. That you're like, okay, this is a thing. It's very important. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, everything changed for me really when I went to Lithuania. Uh, so I went in 2010 um, on a Fulbright to Lithuania and it, everything sort of goes wrong. It's, it's a pretty common story of like, a, you know, recent grads going to these countries Um I didn't speak the language. I could barely find it on a map before I went there. And, uh, but I ended up researching the Vilna ghetto while I was there. Um, I get honestly, it's just like a weird story. Like, uh, 
I was teaching and I was like a Jewish doing Jewish research, I guess. And then a tour agency reached out to me and they're like, do you want to be a tour guide for the Vilna ghetto? And I didn't know anything about the Vilna ghetto. I didn't like know the first thing. And so, but I said, yes, because my heart. And then that's how I had to, I had to start researching because I was going to embarrass myself in front of people. And um, despite like having grown up, uh, like quote unquote learning about the Holocaust, but I, I do think in I went to Jewish day schools and Jewish high school. Uh, I think Holocaust education is is a little I don't want to say misguided exactly, but I think it sort of it misses a lot. I think sort of the lesson that you're sort of you're, the lesson that's pushed like once a year or maybe during like the special Holocaust unit is basically one of trauma and horror. Um, and I think those are really important, but I do think that sort of for me and basically I would say every single one of my friends growing up, you sort of like, you receive the lesson and then you agree with the lesson and you're like, this is traumatic and horrifying. That's it. Um, the revelation for me is when, when I like, I went to Eastern Europe and started researching the obstacles was actually how complicated uh, Holocaust studies is. And also how interesting um, just because it, it just, um, it's so rich and also how understudied it is. Like you, you sort of think it's saturated. Everyone has assumptions. There's so much on it uh, that you're just like, everything that could be done has been done, but it's actually just a fraction. And so uh, I actually, like, I have a lot of like uh, friends who've done PhDs and like, you know, they're like PhD in Holocaust studies. People kind of like uh, another one, but the truth is there's just so much that hasn't even been touched. And um I just found it to be like an unbelievably complicated, like morally complicated and historically complicated topic um, with stuff I had never faced before. And uh, so that like in the Vilna Ghetto, a good example is like, there's a there's an episode where like the Jews had a, a sort of self-governance and actually uh, tried Jews for crimes and including capital punishment. And so like they hanged six Jews and like a sort of infamous episode in the ghetto. And you're like, you read that, you're like, this is something I, I didn't, this is something, a whole other thing, uh, like how to think about. And there's also stuff that you, you that are really like even culturally remarkable that are often missed in the conversation. Like within the, I'm just most familiar with the ghetto, the building ghetto. So you're like the art that was produced or the plays or the sports tournaments or how that governance worked or sort of the, how the, um, how the the health establishment worked or you have like in the in the woods ghetto really famous you had a sort of dictator who like made his own currency and so you just all these questions which i had like had no inkling of before which i found really really interesting but then where then i started spending a lot more time in eastern europe and i would say my uh what really fascinated me when i did most of my research on what i would call like the politics of memory and so uh sort of how that narrative is going to get differentiated in a place like Lithuania or in Poland and how those, those arguments or fights are going to get played out in the public sphere. So you're like, if you have a memorial that's going to be erected, how and where and by whom and who gets to make those decisions and uh, or certain monuments that exist and the fights over that. So I found that stuff really interesting and rich. Um, and there happens to be also in Poland, like a very vibrant Jewish, I wouldn't say community exactly, I would say Jewish energy. Uh, and a lot of it's supplied by non-Jews actually. And so I sort of fell in love um, and had, was just like endlessly fascinated 
um, by like the atmosphere and by the questions in that region. And then my this this whole building thing didn't come for years. I was sort of doing research unrelated to my family from 2011 to 2015. Until in 2015, this the building thing came up. I was like, I, I didn't see it as a book, actually. Um, I wasn't interested in writing it as a book. I saw it as a, a sort of portal into these questions I was interested in. Like, here's a building that still stands. I'm a grandson who has no real relationship with my grandfather other than the one I'm going to sort of semi-consciously invent. And I want to take it back. And I was like, I'm interested in these questions. I wasn't that interested in writing about them maybe beyond like an article, but uh, I actually just found it that all the, like you sort of were intuiting that all those questions sort of pre-existed and then the building was sort of a way in that I, like a, a, an access that I just didn't have before. Do you have an arc of your thoughts and how it might've changed about the moral question and the ethical questions that, that would have been raised by a claims issue like your building, which it's an inheritance claim, not a restitution claim. And I had some questions about that too, but maybe we'll start with this. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to do the technical stuff because you, you're, you're, yeah, I like the tech. To me, it doesn't get asked often enough. Uh, yeah, there, I was absolutely was an arc. Like, cause I didn't, I still was approaching it from what, let's call it like a default Jewish, like Western <laughs> narrative of like, uh, you know, this building was my family's um, and it still is my family's and that's it. Like that's, that's, that's the narrative. Like there was nothing else to consider or no one else to consider. Uh, and then once I, be, and I just sort of went in like, that's it. That, that, that was my entire moral calculus at that point. It was like, it belongs to us, you know, full stop. Uh, and then I started, I was in grad school. And I just like, remember really vividly, like people sort of, I would come back. That's what I did in the summers. And then I'd come back to grad school and people were like, what'd you do? I was like, well, let me tell you this crazy story. And people were kind of giving me flack. Uh, and then some of my Polish friends gave me flack and some of my Jewish friends were giving me flack. And I was like, they were just sort of accusing me of appropriation or displacing like the, the squatters or like whatever you would, might want to call them or like the proper, like the, the current residents. I got so mad. Like initially I would get so defensive and mad because I was like, this is really like a wild, that's a wild accusation. Because yeah, the, the counter example I was sort of trot out is um, like if my family hadn't been murdered in the Holocaust, no one would dare make a claim that it wasn't my building, you know, because then there would be continuity. And you're saying the fact that everyone was murdered somehow in some sort of series of occurrences undermines that claim. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't get around that. Um, but it did, it did sort of like chip away at that default narrative that I had come in to this with, which is there are other people involved, you know? And I think there's a really complicated question about innocence, even if they're sort of, even if they don't know anything and you're sort of saying how, and that, that's a question that like, I don't even know how to sort of frame is like, how is, um, is guilt passed down? from generation to generation. And so like, if your grandfather did something and sort of got, got a house and you happen to live in that house, but have no idea what your grandfather did or a vague idea. But so these were like mostly just sort of innocent or at least unknowing uh, residents. And the fact is like, I just had not considered their story, let alone the consequences 
of what I was doing might have on them. And so I just sort of had to reframe what I was doing and just really sort of think about it uh, in a much more compassionate way, um, which it's it sort of, it sounds really obvious when it's spelled out. And it sounds, it sounds so obvious that it's sort of like shameful to admit that you just, you're like, oh, what kind of morally blind person doesn't think about that coming in? But it's just like, this is a sort of um, subject that could get really charged and, and not just about property. I think just much larger in terms of when we speak about the war is specifically its effects and slash when we talk about repatri- re, like restitution or any other like form of quote unquote justice is sort of like what narratives are we are we sort of using and what narratives are we ignoring? And I, even be, before you even get to the question of like, should you ignore that or uh are like even if you're blind just be aware of like what um what stories and what people are getting centered and prioritized so that that was a sort of an eye-opener with all of that as context i wonder what is the status of your claim now and and even with that change you you still would be pursuing it i i believe yeah so i did pursue it and so the book um, the book sort of ends when I'm sort of in the thicket of sort of this like weird, uh, almost even surreal bureaucracy. Uh, you know, the, the first hurdle was the first, the mat, the biggest hurdle in this whole claim was sort of, uh, getting the course to recognize that my relatives who died in the Holocaust were actually dead. And so were actually legally dead and therefore the property could be passed down or there's sort of an inheritance could be established. Um, we did get that, like basically right when I submitted the draft of my book to the editor, we got um, word from the court that that had been sort of approved. And then it's just sort of been really incremental um, up until a few weeks, ago, uh, like two months ago, when um, sort of the big shift was that the city uh, like signed, this was a petition by the mayor himself. So it was signed by the mayor is making like a formal attempt to take to sort of, um, up to appropriate the property. Um, and so to me, that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting development for a few reasons. One is that is an acknowledgement that it belongs to us. Like, even if they sort of take it back, that sort of they're implicitly acknowledging that they have to take it. And so that is a, and it's also an acknowledgement of what I've been doing. It's sort of, that is a response that didn't come out of nowhere. That's clearly responding. And two, like, I don't know exactly the genesis of this, uh, this legal maneuver. Like it could be that it's just sort of a, maybe some of the residents were really unhappy and they're sort of want something to be done. And this is sort of trying to sort of pacify them. It seems like a, like a really, like it just has no legal basis. Like I, it would be very, I have no idea how this, uh, like on, under what pretense this could sort of get approved. Um, but it is also sort of most more sobering is this is the, just like unambiguously, and I don't, I don't want to say anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, but it's anti me, <laughs> like it's anti my efforts. Everything up until this point has been a little bit more ambiguous in terms of judges decisions. You're like, are they sort of out to get me or are they sort of being hyper sticklers for the rules? Um, and it, it was hard to know. And like my lawyers made mistakes. I made mistakes. It was very hard to interpret some of the judge's decisions, even though they seem to be sort of targeting my efforts. Here, it's 
there's no, there's, this is unambiguous. I mean, this is like, it's an unfair and unjust uh, legal maneuver. With the development of the laws in Poland that are going more and more against restitution claims, it almost seems hard to not see this as in keeping with that mentality, would you? What would you say? It's just, I, you know, I don't know. So, because I think there's like, um, there's sort of like top down policy. And so, like the, the national government, but then this is, this is not that. And so, you're like, this could be one judge. You know, this could be this could be one resident. So, like, I if if the, I think the judge approves that, then then I'll come back and just I'll agree. But I, I like I I'm always really hesitant to sort of ascribe motivation until I understand who's behind it. But they, you know, there was no. It, I'm like a, my case is a little weird because I'm sort of I'm not part of like a normal inheritance claim or normal restitution claims rather. Uh, which is what the law was targeting. I'm sort of, I'm in a way, a way more straightforward case because like, we're like, look, my gr- no one's arguing that my great grandfather owned this building. It, there's, there's, you can't like, there's it's not my records that show that it's theirs. Like you, you go down to the courthouse, that's, you look in the giant book and the ledger, it's like, that's the last listed sale. Um, it is, that's it. There's, there's, so we're just saying, don't, we don't need special laws. We're just saying just like apply inheritance laws here. Um, but yeah, to sort of your broader point, there like certainly has been a shift over the last now seven years of sort of like a nationalist. There's been a turn to more to more nationalist stance and um, a side effect, maybe not necessarily intended effect, but certainly a side effect of that is sort of uh, de-emphasizing or even sort of throwing out um, claims of uh Jewish property and also other other uh, displaced populations, property that belong to Ukrainians, for example, um, are just not going to get honored or even dealt with. Or, you know, the, the biggest I fail here of the Polish state is like not that they're not the, the not even the new laws. To be honest, is that they've never made laws to begin with in order to sort of um, make claims like mine for the large part possible. Like, there you need a special law to legislate these kinds of claims. And without it, your servants aren't just shove something through and it doesn't fit. It doesn't really fit in the legal system. And there's so many broken, there's so many gaps in the historical record just because of war that um, it's just very difficult to sort of like pretend like it's normal bureaucracy. You need, you need a special action. You need a, you need like a, a combination of legislation and activism um, to help claims like mine. How has the response in Poland been to your book? Um, <laughs> or perhaps we were talking about one of the responses. Yeah. <laughs> in, um, in an inadvertent way. It's a good question. You know, the book, it, it's coming out in Polish later this year. So I that will be more interesting. Um, right now, it's, I don't know, to be honest. And so, like, I think... Uh, let me see the treasure hunters. Any treasure hunter was able to read it, read it, anyone who could read English. And they had sort of responses like you would, they, they were really into it and sort of had questions and they, I, I really enjoyed the response. Um, the, 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 I don't really have an answer to that because it hasn't come out in Polish, but I will say I, when I was, we were sort of selling translation rights, the country I really, you know, we sold it in a bunch of different countries, but the country I really cared about was Poland. 
And I was sort of like mystified and bewildered and kind of like upset that I wasn't getting any bites. And like the major publishers were just completely uninterested. And I couldn't, I was just like, I can't fathom that. I was just like, what? This makes no sense to me. I was like, this book, I, you know, it was like a big enough book here. So like it, it sort of, it sort of proved that there was a market. And in Poland, this is like a big deal, this kind of stuff. And it's like the, both the treasure hunting and the property reclamation. And so you're like, some people, you know, I don't, you, I just don't know why the big brothers weren't interested. Um, maybe they felt it was too hot. Maybe they felt it would be like too politically sensitive. I don't know. It ended up going to like a publisher I really love, like a smaller nonprofit and like who deep, like they're really behind it and really care about it and are in a way more interesting for it because they, they're sort of interested in having a controversy. To, to be totally, I, th- I my, that's my sense. If like they, they're like a historical, they sort of do uh, a lot of sort of historical work. Um, there's, there's, they're called the, the Carta Project. And um, I think they're used to getting a lot of flack. You know, uh, in Poland, people get really worked up about, uh, you know, uh, history television or history magazines or books about history. These things could like really set off a public debate that I, I don't, it's not so often here at least. And um, so I'm, I'm happy I found a home and I, I am excited to see what will happen. I like, it would be really interesting if it got panned <laughs> or maybe no one will care. Uh, you know, I think the sort of, uh, they have other things to worry about, but so we'll see. Were there challenges that you encountered with your research that you worked around or have thoughts that you would want to share about how the availability of archives was an issue for you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, one, I don't read Polish. And so um, there was just no way I was going to be able to do this amount of research without like a lot of help. And so um, I had hired a few research assistants. I sort of one sort of emerged as like just really amazing like really smart, really capable. Um, her name's Justina. Um, I never met her in person. And so she sort of did just like a huge amount of research. And I gave her like some of the assignments weren't easy. I was like, go and find every story of myth of treasure about this region from whatever source. And she came back with this like incredible document of like dozens and dozens of these fables and myths. And that actually basically became a chapter. Like she basically wrote or she composed one of the chapters of the book because that the document just presented itself. I was like, this is really compelling in its own right as just sort of like a collection of like short fables. Um, so I, I definitely have to rely on a lot of people. Um, challenge, yeah, I mean, uh, archive research is just always going to be challenging, but like I... I think it's important to say, like, I'm not, this is not an academic book by any stretch and I am not a historian. And so that gives me a lot of freedom, you know, so like I'm saying my story and I want anything I say that assert, I want it to be true, but I'm also sort of, I'm sort of more describing my own journey rather than sort of any sort of, uh, there's no gesture at sort of describing reality here. And um, which takes a real load off. Like, you know, you like, so I don't have to make sure I see every single piece of paper about something. I think the, I think the most 
I, oh yeah, okay. So I would say the two things that were sort of the most research intensive were one was, you know, the thing I didn't know about at all was this forced exile of Germans after the war, uh, which I believe is the largest forced exile, the largest population that's ever been forcibly displaced ever. I, I believe that's true. I should back up. I think it was like over a million people were forcibly displaced after the war from land that had been Germany and been given to Poland. That's something I just did not know about. Um, and it is, it's sort of, uh, I just needed to know about it to describe part of my story with uh, the woman who saved Abraham after the war. And so that was really eye-opening. Um, there's just, there's a, an incredible book of which title I can never remember because it's a weird title. Uh, I'll do a quick scan. Uh, I don't see it. Okay, whatever. And then uh, and the other thing that was so challenging with research was the conspiracy theories. I, you know, that was the most research intensive chapter by far. I spent like six months researching Nazi-centric conspiracy theories. And that was very hard uh, because it's so dense. Like reading these books about, you know, a 400 page book about anti-gravity, which makes very little sense, but sort of makes, has a sort of internal logic and you sort of have to figure out that internal logic. That was awful. I mean, it was really, I hated that, but uh, it was fun to learn about just, just so, oh, what a drag. <laughs> yeah. I don't don't want to give anything away, but when Gertrude Froelich, she and her family have to leave, the description of that when they left and how that dramatically changed their life in that forced exile is such a compelling part of the story for Abraham Kaiser's portion of your your memoir. Yeah, that was a surprise. I didn't know about that. That that was like a one of the most meaningful things I got to sort of discover. Um like when, when that, I learned that way after I started writing the book. Uh, and so most of the book, I, you sort of already know how it's going to go. Like you have a pretty good idea. And that I sort of learned um, as I went along. And I was like a real, yeah, that was really special. Like I, I'm really, really grateful. I, I was able to do that and go to Germany and uh, go to Israel. And uh, yeah, like to me, that you're, that's like maybe the beating heart of the book. The chapter that the archivist the resource that she used to or sent to you uh was it, it you said it was a, a document that she sent you that helped develop that one chapter yeah basically i because part of the thing i was interested in sort of this region becomes a little bit of a character silesia and silesia and like so and it's so myth soaked there's so many like myths there and so about mostly about treasure and, you know, treasure adjacent stuff. And so I was just like, look, <laughs> I was like, Estina, hard assignment, just go find from whatever source you can find. And she just did an incredible job of it. So she went to archives, but she went to newspapers. She went to sort of these old medieval fable, like books of medieval fables. Um, and she just put, she, she just sort of organized it by just sort of dumping it all on a Word doc. And then I saw the Word doc and I was just like, this is pretty cool. Like th this, this feels like rich and interesting and sort of makes an implicit argument, makes implicit the argument that I had been, was going to have to make explicit in a way that felt clunky and sort of relative sort of this document really ungraceful. So I just sort of, you know, edited that document. I had to rewrite it a little bit, but that 
she, I give her full credit for composing that chapter. I see. So it was a, an amalgam of resources that she used. Yeah. From any, from like, some of them were contemporary newspaper clippings and some of them were like these medieval Polish, uh, like fables. Um, and so just like a really weird collection. You'd mentioned your research on the Vilna ghetto. Uh, the archive from that area, I believe you had done some research on too. Could you talk a bit about that archive? Someone had likened it to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I, I just didn't realize it had that weight to it. Yeah, so there, there was just an archive um, before the war in Vilnius uh, part of, that was part of the Yivo collection. And Yivo was just sort of this like, at that time, leading edge institution of like Yiddish culture. Uh, and it just, it collected everything. They were like really interested in like the daily life of Jews. So they would collect every scrap of like day-to-day material from like songbooks to like political pamphlets to, they had a gigantic collection of photographs, um, newspapers, all those sorts of stuff. And that, that, that archive has like a really, you know, it was, it was during the war, a lot of it was sort of hidden um, either in the Evo building itself or in the ghetto, any, any building was destroyed, but the, much of the ghetto material was recovered. Um, some of it was sort of smuggled out, uh, right after the war and taken to New York. And some of it remained in Vilnius and during the Soviet occupation was presumed lost. But in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, it was discovered that it had been saved by a Lithuanian librarian, um, at like great personal risk. And then over the story is like a really remarkable one from like for like 25 years, there was basically these negotiations that quickly stalled about how to sort of that they should be sent back to New York or at least uh, copied. And so, but nothing really happened um, up until a few years ago, Yivo and the National Library of Lithuania struck a deal that the so the documents will remain in Lithuania, but they, everything will be digitized. Um, and so they're nearing completion of that. And so um, each of the Dead Sea Scroll comment you mentioned, it was uh, David Fishman, who I think it's safe to say is the expert, one of the world's experts on the Vilna ghetto, and who wrote a, a really wonderful book called The Paper Smugglers. I can't actually remember, The Paper Smugglers, uh, which is about the the... The, the ghetto, basically that material that was smuggled uh, during the war and into the ghetto. Uh, and so he likened it. He's like, this is the most important um, event in Jewish scholarship since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And just like a massive, massive trove of documents that a lot of it has never been seen before that describe uh, pre-war Jewish Europe um, from all over the place. And the, 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 that collection was very much like lay driven. Uh, and so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like people, it wasn't academics. It was mostly like people who were really devoted to this cause of collecting material. And so it's just like a really surprising snapshot of stuff. You have like memoirs written by kids or photographs of like small shtetls or um, just like a huge, huge amount of material. So yeah, like in terms of like Yiddish, both Yiddish scholarship and uh pre-war history research it's this is like a monumental event and so i yeah for context i I ended up writing an article about this archive and its uh digitization efforts um a few months ago for a journal called the jewish quarterly and so yeah i hadn't known a ton about it before that 
you know, it was something I knew a little bit. I knew like the rough outlines of the story, but um, I spent a few months researching that and sort of, um, yeah. And that, that was, that was really interesting. And I found the question of ownership there to be particular, very, very charged as like, who owns these documents? Um, and then you have another question of the digital, a digital artifact versus the physical artifact. And so like, there's an implicit argument being made by the institutions that they're equivalent or even interchangeable. And like, I found that to be a tough, I, I, I didn't, I don't buy that argument. And so you're saying, what's the, you know, there's, there's wonderful upside to digitization. Um, it's accessible, it's high resolution. It sort of doesn't take up space, but there are downsides. And I said, there's a value in the artifact. And that's where sort of dovetails with my work of sort of like figuring out value that is not necessarily tangible. Um, you know, even though it's the same words on the page, but there's a, there's a value there to the artifact. And it's something like a spiritual value or sentimental value or like a research value. So uh, it's what attracted me to that story. I also thought it was interesting. Was it in the 80s or so when it was discovered? In the like late 80s, like right when Lithuania was sort of beginning its march towards independence, that it it, it, it emerged, it emerged. I think there was like, this people kind of knew stuff like that. But like then I would say that those negotiations, negotiations began right in 1989, 1990. Just uh, to me, it kind of was another example of how archives like that opening up in the recent past link to why sometimes information was delayed in coming to our era and then why claims are still going forward today. Yeah, that was that that was one of the fun things to like realize how rich and complicated research about archives is. And like these archives, not as just sort of, I think most lay people think of archives as sort of like libraries, just sort of like, you know, whatever, some, a closet full of documents. Uh, but archives are really complicated. And so like how they get organized is like this really, really, polit- it's often a very political question or historiographical um, one. And so just sort of who owns an archive? Uh, if it gets split up, how, do, how can you reconstitute it? Um, all these questions I found to be endlessly fascinating with like pretty real implications. And so, and this, this was just a really good example of it. Um, you have just this archive in New York that sort of claims full ownership of these. And it's not, that's not entirely true. You have like a, just dozens or even hundreds of institutions that don't exist anymore. And so you're then there's, yeah, the archives often represent, especially old archives, uh, they represent deleted you know places places and institutions that are gone and so who gets to stand for them who gets to speak for them and th- those questions are going to always be sort of really interesting and charged you mentioned early on uh arts programs in in ghettos and i was curious if there were any examples coming out of the vilna ghetto that you noticed um either artists who were working there that you saw when you were doing the research or uh arts programs you mean during the war or now? Yeah, during the war. The, oh. That was the research you were doing, right? Was yeah, most the Vilna ghetto during the war? Yeah, yeah. My research yeah, was definitely during the ghetto. Um, yeah, they, they would have competitions. They would even, the ghetto would sponsor artistic competitions. Uh, Samuel Bach, who survived the war as a young boy and that then became a pretty famous artist. Uh, you know, a lot of his stuff is in uh, 
Boston, but his, his paintings are like really remarkable. And a lot of them are informed by his time in the ghetto. Um, it, but you have um, some really remarkable literature that was, that was also done, uh, most notably Abraham Sutzkover, who I think by and large is considered the most important poet in Yid- the most important Yiddish poet in history. Um, you have, um, yeah, you have some really wonderful stuff. You, you had like a series of lectures, some of which had been recorded, which were like done every week. You had different, yeah, there was a, um, uh, Kaczynski who sort of like wrote these songs, some which became sort of known throughout Europe and sort of became even like a protest song. Um, yeah, and just like it's a really remarkable series of uh, work was was done, and also like sort of political work. I think that sort of the gov- how the, the governance was done. There was a there was a there was almost a civil war uh, in the ghetto, and so you which was uh, very much done by political, so you by political affiliation, and so you had like the the. A little bit. Some of this is a little foggy, and so you have like uh, how, like the commun- like how the communists. There was the com- the communists sort of ran the undergrounds a little bit there uh, because they were able to have ties with the outside communist groups. Um, and so yeah, it's, it's an interesting space because you can't really disentangle the art from resistance, from governance, from some basic survival. Like, it was just a small hyper dense space. It's a hyper dense time. It only existed for about two years was unbelievably vibrant during that time and so it's just like trying to understand day-to-day life there which was for a period of time was somewhat stable even like they they had they were sort of um they were able to make like a stable life it was relatively healthy it was one of the few ghettos that didn't have a any sort of major outbreaks which is a huge achievement uh you know to the they had like a sanitary department they had a sanitary sanitation police actually that would issue fines for violations. Yeah, so there's just like this is this is stuff I just kept learning, and you're just like it's just so so rich. Um, this sort of this place that existed for two years, and sort of how to understand it, and sort of the all the questions that arise when you start examining anything from government to like the ethics of the place to the resistance. And there's these questions that I've just I would like to give you an example. It's like. Um, you know, one of the, I found the most compelling stories is this, that the resistance. And so there was basically a really uh, opaque episode in which there was um, the leader of the resistance was on some level given up uh, to the Germans. And we don't know the full story. There's a lot of disagreement about it. But, um, you know, the blame usually is placed at the head of the ghetto, this guy named Jacob Gens. Jacob Gens did not survive. He was shot by the Germans towards the end. And, um, you know, I gave a speech. It was like, this must have been like 20, I don't remember, like 2013 or something at like a large New York institution where I talked about this. And afterwards, this woman approached me and she was like, you're defaming my grandfather. Like he, like this, your story is wrong. Um, you know, this is sort of a story that was told by the people who survived who were more, who were by and large part of the resistance. And so they've all chosen that narrative. And so like, I don't, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no, but I'm saying it's just really, it was really a really interesting time where sort of this, this historical question has, has been so unresolved and it's still like, 
you know, the history gets told too often in ways that feel very decided. And I was like, here's a question. And I ended up writing a long piece about that as sort of like the question surrounding this man's death, who's named Wittenberg, both how he died and who is responsible for that death. And these are, we'll never fully resolve them, uh, but I do think there's great value in sort of examining the different, um, like where the story forks and who gets to tell the story uh, and how that sort of impacts how that story is told. Has your idea of justice evolved over the course of this project? Those, those are questions like I don't, I'm, I always feel sort of like too shy <laughs> to, to I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I, I let people more knowledgeable than me about that or like more versed. I got, cause I'm not, I don't, I'm just like not versed in that kind of stuff in that, that language. Like to me, I, I'm really, I'm really determined to sort of like limit like what I do and do not speak about because like, I, I feel like I went through my own experiences and I feel like an authority on that. And then basically nothing else for definitely sort of like big topics like justice. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I think all those questions, as soon as I had my personal journeys that sort of involved justice on some level, and those got more and more complicated. And so I feel really grateful for that. So sort of, um, it was kind of eye-opening because like the way I grew up, I definitely experienced a pretty sheltered life. I certainly never had to deal with the, with like the leak. Like I never had to deal with the courts in any way um, here. I, I, would, I would say so the one, the one comment I'll make about that is like, uh, you know, people, the one question I get all the time, I would say 90% of the times I speak about the book, someone wants to talk to me about anti-Semitism in Poland. Someone wants me to either, usually to be totally honest, most, like most of my audiences are largely Jewish. And there's usually a person who sort of feels very strongly that I should sort of condemn Poland for anti-Semitism. Or they ask me, they're like, tell me about all those instances of anti-Semitism you experience. They, they sort of want to feel firm. And I give like, I always give this really frustrating answer, which is like, like I'll be totally honest. Like I did not experience, like I did not feel like I experienced personally um, anti-Semitism. I feel like on a day-to-day basis, like the the interactions I was having were like unbelievably curious and supportive. Um, and then the one, I, the, the one sort of like the, the thing that I my eye opened, I got my eyes open to, and I mentioned this like a little bit before, was sort of on a systemic level. I was like, even you could argue that no one was out to get me, that no one did anything. Everyone was playing by the book. And yet the system has been designed to frustrate my efforts. And that was really eye-opening because I had this firsthand experience of even when everyone is acting with the best intentions, if a system has not been designed to help someone, it could really frustrate them and act with some prejudice. And I was like, there's no way this system is, is I, I, would, I mean, that's the anti-Semitism I experienced on a systemic, but almost unintentional level because like no one has been proactive about it. And that was eye-opening in terms of like thinking about the US or Canada where I grew up of like, if it, the system, again, everyone's sort of acting quote unquote properly and yet certain populations and certain individuals will just, uh, it will be prejudiced towards them. Um, again, and even though all the actors are doing what they're quote unquote supposed to do. 
And so that, that was my sort of first time experience. And that was like a lesson I got to take out of it, which I, again, very grateful for. It was very frustrating, continues to be frustrating, uh, but it's like a universal lesson, at least, I guess, I hope. Would you say that the more you've um, learned about Abraham Kaiser and your grandfather, I, I know you didn't learn a lot, I don't think, about your grandfather, except his dogged efforts to try to get this building back. Very little, yeah. I just was curious uh, if your idea of how you want your legacy to be has formed. That's a good question. I, you know, I, I, the only, I can only speak about like being a writer, really. Like, I don't know. Personal, like, that's like way too big and scary a question. Um, uh, you know, I, this, I, I, this book was written kind of reluctantly, and which is sort of like the dark secret here. It's like, I didn't, more than reluctantly, I was like really opposed to writing like a book in this genre. And like, I make reference to that in the book itself. And so I'm, I'm proud of my book. I, I am proud and I'm, I'm happy with how it came out, but I would be, this is not like how I envisioned myself as a writer. And so I also kind of want to move on. Um, I, I, it's, but like, I don't want to minimize it. Like I, I'm, I don't want to minimize it, but yeah, like I, I don't want this to be my, like people often ask me if I'm planning on writing a sequel. And I'm like, never, unless something really wild happens, but I don't think it is. I would never, ever write a sequel. To me, there's something interesting about writing a sequel that kind of undermines the first. So it's not an actual sequel, but it's sort of a response. Like that's interesting to me. Um, but no. And like, I, I feel like the thing about a book, it's like, that's like sort of like the biggest way to tackle it. And like, I did it. And it's like, even though the book is super unresolved, um, I didn't write this book in order to tell what happened. I wrote this book for like much more complicated and personal reasons. Like it's, it's a thing that happened to me and here's how I'm going to encapsulate that. And this is sort of like this artifact of not only my experiences, but of like me um, during those years. And so I feel very finished with it. Um, very, very done. And uh, it's had a much longer afterlife than I had expected. And, um, and so like now it's, I've become, like people are often getting in touch with me with sort of stories that are related to it. And sometimes I get pulled into it and some usually I don't, but sometimes I do get pulled. And so I, you know, that that's, you know, like I have, look, I, I, like I mentioned before, I found myself sort of in this role a little bit. And so like, you know, people want me to come to talk for their, like their Holocaust remembrance lectures and stuff like that. And so I'm like, I don't, I, I actually sort of want to tell them like, I'm not the right person in a way. I like, I think if you want to come have a panel to talk about <laughs> the Holocaust remembrance lecture, then maybe I'm an interesting person. But like, I, it's not, it's not me in a way. Um, it's a role I've taken on in the last year, but I don't, I'm not, I like, I'm not a historian. And uh, I, I learned, I've learned that the hard way, like how much of a historian I'm not. And so I, yeah, I like, I'm sort of, I see myself as moving away a little bit from this topic, but it's, you know, I'm never going to leave it entirely. Like I, this is, it's been, I would say arguably since 2010, I've been sort of 
this has been a primary, secondary part of my life, like Eastern Europe. Um, but yeah, I, I like, again, I, I'm approaching this first and foremost as a writer. And so like, if it doesn't have like personal charge for me, I'm not gonna, it's a, like, you can't dedicate your life to it. You can't dedicate like even four or five years, which is like to write a book. So we'll see. How do you envision yourself as a writer going forward? I, I, I want to return to fiction. I, I, and also what, for me, fiction, is, it, lets, it lets me be a lot more playful. And so that, which is actually sort of my, uh, that's where I'm much more comfortable, even when talking about this kind of stuff, like with nonfiction, I just felt a little bit constrained. I, I just like you, I'm like, I have to be like 70% more somber than I'm used to or more comfortable with. And in fiction, I just feel it could be a little bit more irreverent. Um, it, it doesn't have to, cause it's not like. I don't know all those responsibilities that people ascribe to nonfiction books that have to do with world war II are ones that are, are pretty heavy. And so I feel like fiction lets me get out from under that. And so I do see fiction. Yeah. That's, that's where I want to write. That hasn't happened in a, a really long time. I just haven't had the time or wherewithal. Um, the, the next big project is like, did grow out of this one actually. And so it's a, uh, like a, a basic wall, there was a, I don't know if it's still happening, but there was like a documentary that was being worked on that was about the golden train. And then through research about that, I ended up talking to this guy and he mentioned this really crazy story that's going on in Montreal right now about a man who accused his childhood best friend of hiding like $4 billion worth of Nazi gold in his basement. And the story is like insane. It's just like a really weird strange story and so I got involved in that and so I'm writing a magazine story about that but that's I to me that's interesting it's like real people not real okay living people with like a messy life and a very messy story there will be a link in the show notes to learn more about Menachem Kaiser and his book Plunder if you'd like to share your thoughts about this or any of the other podcast episodes Please leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast, or you can email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com or leave a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.